From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Today I'm joined by Maurice Cherry and Taylor Simone. Cherry is a designer and digital creator in Atlanta, currently working as a creative strategist at Glitch and the creator and host of the podcast Revision Path, where he highlights the work of black designers, developers, and digital creatives. He was the 2018 recipient of the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary from the American Institute of Graphic Arts and was included in the 2018 edition of the Roots Annual List of the Most Influential African Americans, aged 25 to 45. Taylor Simone is a graphic artist, designer, and writer from Metro Detroit. She previously worked at the Detroit Institute of Art. She's currently a faculty member teaching graphic design here at Bowling Green State University. Thanks so much for talking with me today. Maurice, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to focus your design work so much on social media and digital formats? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Um, So when I first started really working with design, it had all been on computers. It was really first starting out with the Apple IIe computer doing a little USA rocket in BASIC. That was sort of my first time really experimenting with design and with computer graphics, so it kind of came together in that way. Um, And then when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to redesign my school's newspaper, so that was my first time sort of cutting my teeth with using uh, Adobe Photoshop, Adobe PageMaker, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, Adobe Illustrator, etc. And I always sort of had digital design as sort of a hobby because I had been so into computers. I had started learning HTML in high school, and it was something that I always did as a hobby on the side. So my design practice sort of evolved in the same time as my interest in working with computers and doing programming. So it sort of ran at the same pace. How do you approach teaching design And what ideas or practices do you emphasize for young people entering into design fields? I always think it's good to start with a project. Uh, There's a concept out there that's called ultra learning, where essentially you are learning how to do something in a very quick amount of time. I think the old school ways of learning are you read a book, you do the exercises in the book, and then you hopefully try to apply those skills to your future work in some way. And I think what studies have shown is that can be somewhat of an inefficient process because the things that you do out in the real world or in your job are going to be different from what's in a textbook. That's a very sort of dated reference when you're doing that. Whereas if you're doing a project, you're able to apply the skills in real time to whatever it is that you're doing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a public-facing project. It can be a private project. It could be, oh, I'll give you an example. Back when I was a teenager, a lot of people were making fan pages on like Tripod and GeoCities and Angel Fire of their favorite music artists. That's essentially a project. You know, you're learning how to use HTML and how to use images and how to use all the different tags and commands for something that, granted, it, it may not be of you know huge merit to the outside world, but you're able to apply these skills directly in a context that you see the results immediately. And so that's something that I think carries on whether you're Uh, I think whether you're just starting out or even whether you're learning something completely new, 
it's a it's a really good concept. Well, and that leads me to one of the other questions, which is how both of you see your work in design related to community engagement. So you've suggested there, Maurice, right, that whether for your clients that is always present, you are very aware of kind of social movements and the current climate and thinking about um, the ways design can support that. Um, What about for you, Taylor? Um, How do you see some of your design work or teaching uh, in relationship to kind of the community engagement and social context? Yeah, um, I think for the most part, it's weird for me because I want my practices to start to merge, but I find them continuing to be like these separate uh, endeavors or initiatives. So when I think about community, I specifically think about like working with the Design Justice Network, which is a network that's all about human-centered design and really stepping down as the designer and kind of transitioning to facilitator. So Within that idea, it kind of pours back into this idea of like uh, individualized teaching, learning, um, and experimentation in that way where me and this group of designers or the members in the collective all work together to kind of approach communities that already have solutions to the problems that they're facing. And these are like marginalized communities. Um and kind of allow them to steer as we facilitate outside of that. So it's this interesting, I guess, back and forth of collaboration between the two. And I really love thinking about design like almost like a toolkit that people can take and use in the ways that they need. So it's not like establishing these hard line rules. Um, I think design is so expansive and it can be used in so many ways to bring people together or push ideas to the forefront. Um, so that's kind of where I sit within design for social engagement or social impact. Could you give an example of a project that you did with that collective and sort of how that process worked and sort of what the outcome was? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I did with them was actually um, as an organizer, uh, coming together and organizing for a conference in Detroit called the Allied Media Conference, where the conference is kind of set up like a big skill share almost, where you're bringing together organizers and people that will be in the position to teach others and also collaborate with others and just not necessarily going over... um, workshops and tutorials, but ways to critically think about how you're approaching that and approaching teaching. Um, That's honestly one of the things that made me realize that I love teaching and that was something that I wanted to pursue, Um, not within necessarily the academic space, but within the ways that it can branch outside of that um, and engage the the surrounding community. For Maurice, what about for you? I mean, you're working in a lot of different areas, and so many of the things you're working on are about relationships and about process. Could you talk about one example where you see some of these ideas at play where art and design are more than just creating something? They're about kind of changing dynamics. Uh, Sure, absolutely. Uh, So earlier this month, I was in Boston. I was in Cambridge at the uh, Black in Design Conference. It's a conference that the African-American Student Union at Harvard Graduate School of Design puts on 
every other year. They started it in 2015. They've had one in 2017. So this was the third installment. In each of the times they've had the conference, the theme has centered around the concept of space. The first year, it was around the concept of physical space, starting from the neighborhood to the city to the state to the region. The second year they did it, it was around organizing space, like how do we create spaces for organizing, for protest, et cetera. And the third theme, which was this year, was around uh, black futurism. And so granted, that is a, a, a topic which, of course, relates to black people, but also it sort of extends out further with the concept of how do you use your design talents to create a more equitable future. And so there are people there that are using their design to combat the incarceration system. They're using design to speak to equity in technology and media. They're using design uh, to archive what designers are doing. Uh, at the Harvard Graduate School, they have at the Francis Loeb Library, the African-American Design Nexus, which is um, a way for them to sort of archive what black designers have done throughout the years. And so they're all taking these skills that we learn as designers and using them in ways that can benefit sort of the greater world. So that's been something that's been on my mind really, I mean, well, since the conference, it's been on my mind. Like, how do we use the skills that we have to sort of impact the world? Because as digital designers, everything we create is pretty ephemeral. It can be destroyed. It can be overwritten. It can be deleted, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but there are huge issues out there that designers are sort of uniquely equipped to solve. There's uh, immigration issues, there's climate change, there's a number of different things out there that designers can use their unique skills of process and uh, analysis in order to really combat. Taylor, you have said that your design practice is based around cultivating sustainable understandings of self, communities, and design justice. So we've been talking a bit about that. Could you elaborate on how you apply those ideas to your educational practices? Yeah, um, I think for me, finding ways to engage outside of the classroom becomes really important for me, um, just from a level of access, uh, walking it back and thinking about self. I also think about the ways that the classroom starts to shift or shape me. Um, so I tend to approach things from a collaborative space where I'm looking at not only like how I can come and disengage my ego in the classroom and learn from my students, but yeah, and how it can become like this back and forth exchange. Um, it's interesting because this is my first semester being a full-time teacher, so there's still so much to learn within the space of academia specifically. Like I've had these experiences where I'm doing community workshops and things like that where it's a eclectic group of people coming together. Um, so there's still so much I have to learn about what can be leveraged, what can be bent, how these resources at the university can also be dispersed outside of it. So I'm in this interesting space where it's like I thought I knew <laughs> how this would kind of go, but um, there's still, I think there's still so much to learn. I think academia is such a large, powerful system that when you do talk about um, inserting some of these ideas of shifting the way that things are being taught, shifting the way that students are looking at material, that there's... Um, 
well, bureaucracy that you have to move through. So it's really interesting, and I'm really excited to kind of start engaging in a way that's less passive. I feel like I'm in a mode where it's like listen, process, and really understand the environment that you're in right now. Um, And I have, like I said, that experience of teaching workshops. So it's like how do I start to build the bridge or really take what I've learned in those instances and bring them into the classroom. And I think I'm achieving that in small ways, whether it just be encouraging students to be critical in a certain way um, or like leaving those little nuggets of like criticality. Um, But there's just so much more that can be done. And I think that Right now, I'm kind of interested in how to build those networks or um, facilitate, like, spaces. Kind of like uh, Maurice is kind of like even thinking about how black designers are kind of all disparate uh, across all of these spaces and how to bring them in and connect them because I'm realizing that I'm this one individual who can make change, but there's something it's like, I feel like there's a large shift that I want to lean into um, that I'm still kind of trying to wrap my mind around. Well, and that is, I think, an interesting point of contrast, right? You're new to this big bureaucracy of a university, right? Maurice, you've been doing the podcast and your other work for a long time. I'm curious, sort of now that you've done 300 and some (laughs) podcast interviews with black designers and working in the tech industry. What are you now able to see about, um, about the industry or about the way individual artists and creatives kind of um, are able to create networks for themselves within a very dispersed um, and largely white system? Uh, That's a great question. So, Certainly what I've seen over the years are more people starting to create their own enclaves, events, spaces. These have really cropped up a lot, I'd say, within the past five to six years now. We've seen a lot of these happen. There's uh, the Hue Design Summit in Atlanta. There's Creative Control Fest, which is actually here in Ohio. It's in Columbus. Uh, The Interact Project, which is out in, um, not California, it's in Seattle, I think, sorry. I know it's on the West Coast. It used to be in California. I think it's also in Seattle as well. But there are a number of different initiatives out there that are starting to crop up sort of um, almost in response to the general kind of design industry as a whole. I think what's important to note is that the design industry is oddly multifaceted. Um, Design is a very broad kind of topic and whether you're talking about graphic design, industrial design, architecture, etc. Each of those different disciplines has their own sort of, I don't know, levels of issues that are going on within it. Like with black architects, this is going on. With black furniture designers, this is going on. It's kind of endemic across all of these different um, sort of disciplines. So What I'm seeing is more people just carving out their own spaces. I would say the industry as a whole, what I think they're doing is recognizing the issue, but I don't think they're trying to fix it in any sort of a measurable way. I think it's still a lot of lip service. Um, It's still a lot of sort of empty promises. 
um, there's actually a piece that, so, excuse me, there's a piece that came out recently from uh, someone with AIGA Seattle, or I think he was with AIGA Seattle, named Timothy Bartlevins about AIGA, which is the American Institute of Graphic Arts, professional institution for graphic designers. And he came out with a piece recently on Medium about how AIGA upholds white supremacy. And it was a very sort of scathing critique of the end of the organization, which many people have had before of the organization. And the organization is over a hundred years old and is not really trying to change because it's because whatever they're doing right now is working in service of sort of the greater industry. So there certainly uh, is recognition of the issue. If we're looking at AIGA specifically, they do a design census, so they have the statistics. So it's not like this is just coming up in a vacuum. This is an issue that has been around for over 30 years now. So they're recognizing it, but big change is not really. And so what I'm seeing are more people just making their own thing, making their own space, creating community where they're at, instead of trying to sort of buy into this larger sort of design industry as a whole. You mentioned before, right, that... Um so much of design in the digital world is ephemeral, right? Mm -hmm. And so that work, the podcast, and now it being archived, um, is a way of sort of ensuring there is a record. And you mentioned at Harvard, um, there's, there's efforts there, too, to archive some of this work. Yes. Um, how do you... Taylor, kind of work into your practice again in teaching or in your own in your own design work to kind of leave a record of some of these things so that it isn't all just ephemeral. I think it's hard because I think that there really is no true guarantee that something won't be erased. Um, so within my creative practice, I kind of lean into that ephemerality um, or the idea that some things aren't necessarily meant to last. Um, it can be for now, and that's fine. Um, so as far as like archiving and looking, thinking about the archive, more so as like this living thing or this living network versus something that is just contained to the actual thing that was put out because I think that when you insert something into culture and it makes an impact whether it's small or little it creates this network or this ripple or this riptide of ways in which it's impacting um just kind of like my what Maurice was saying about how people have gotten opportunities so like that moment lives on past the actual incident so in a way that's kind of how I think about archiving and also how I think about the power of the visual image in general like yes that is the act but it's what lives on or how it transforms somebody when they engage with it versus um, that single moment. So yeah. can you give an example of work that you've done where you've played with that idea of like the icon um, and tried to disrupt it or play with its kind of um, impermanence. Yeah. Um, I think that even a piece that I'm a video piece that I'm working on now that is meant to be um, played after the audience engages in some kind of ritual or some kind of act before that. Um, 
even just like in the visual aesthetic of the piece itself, it's pixelated. It's and that's where I kind of get into the destruction of those things where it's like it's meant for you to enter, but not meant for you to necessarily stay, if that makes sense. Um, So I think a lot of that is just really inserted through how I approach my like visual aesthetic Um, and also just in the act of I've been really into happenings lately or things that kind of are meant for that moment and don't live past it and that's what I'm kind of getting at with the ritual that it becomes more so about this shared moment that the people had in that time and space and less about the idea that it may that the peace may live on. Yeah. Great. Maurice, do you have an example? We haven't really talked about your design work. So of uh, sort of, could you give us an example of something you've worked on recently and sort of how it reflects some of your interests and approaches? Oh, wow. Design work. That's a good question because I don't really do a ton of design these days. Um, Wow. I, I have to really think about that. Like visual design, graphic design? You, I'll leave that open. I mean, you have your renaissance person who <laughs> I think design applies to a lot of different aspects of okay. your life and career. So, okay. um, you know, anything we haven't talked about yet that is a facet of how you apply design and creative thinking. So I'll say probably my most recent project, which was the uh, design anthology with Recognize, is probably a, a good example of that. So... That was funded by Envision through their Design Forward Fund. And essentially what I wanted to do with that was continue upon uh, the legacy of Stephen Heller from winning the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary. It's interesting because that's a prize for design writing, and I'm a design podcaster. And so it's it was interesting to receive the award not for writing but for just doing these interviews. But so I wanted to be able to contribute to just the general – corpus of design history by introducing more uh, people of color and indigenous design writers to give their commentary on the industry. And so we gave them a theme. They wrote pieces on the theme. We had people that did submissions. We chose the best ones out of there, tried to sort of edit and polish them together for publication and then release them along with custom illustrations, which came from, uh, from someone that I knew. And so that's had, I think, a really good impact in terms of getting more design voices out there. A lot of my work has really been about showcasing the community. And so I try to use my design talent in that way to try to help sort of help us all rise, I guess. We're going to take a short break. Thank you. Consider the following. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today I'm talking to Maurice Cherry and Taylor Simone about graphic design, technology, and race. So I have another question for both of you, which is that both of you do work that is very interested or by necessity because of the industry as it is at the intersection of design and technology, right? Um, One of the things we're interested in in the Institute is interdisciplinarity and what happens, what the benefits are for bridging kind of traditional disciplinary divides. So for each of you, I'd like to know kind of what you see as uh, the particular 
benefits at this moment in time of bringing together a kind of the history and processes of design with the particular tools and technologies available in our current moment. Will you start, Maurice? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think it's now more easier than ever to really put things together into a finished product. Uh, there's a lot of frameworks and tools and things that plug into each other and work together that will really allow you to create something out of nothing very, very quickly. I mean, when I started, this was back in the, I'm dating myself, it's like <laughs> back in the mid-90s or so, uh, a lot of that was just reverse engineering whatever you saw out there on the internet. You viewed the source code and you just tried to figure it out. There was no tutorials, there was no classes or anything like that to kind of show you the way. It was a lot of it just kind of, you, you made the road by walking, so to speak. Now there's so many single service ways to just fire up a website, fire up a database, a forum, what have you, to gather information, disseminate information. There's social media now, which makes it even more easier to get your voice out there and connect with other people. Um, and so because of those things, you're able to use design in, I think, very, I don't want to say non-traditional ways, but you're able to use them in ways now more than you could before to create really anything that you want. If there's something that you feel like you have an interest in, you can, I've seen people crowdsource design, like they'll crowdsource what they want people to see and they'll take that and put it into their work. And so it becomes sort of this sort of public um, iterative process around creation and destruction or, you know, building something together with the community that you're trying to serve. Before all this technology and things were here, I don't know if that, I mean, that would have been like a really impossible feat to kind of do. You'd sort of be standing out on the street just asking people to give input, whereas now you can tap into anyone that has an internet connection all over the world, and that's a really powerful tool. It's a really powerful tool. Um, I think that just as far as, like, um, this shift of interdisciplinary kind of work, that it's something, like, technology has always kind of been something that progresses design history um and I think that we're just at a moment where the technology is so vast and past what people would perceive about even like 10 years ago about what you could do that it's just a really exciting moment and I get excited about the idea of adding layers of context to anything um so the idea that you can take this single thing and create a vast system, visual uh, visual system out of that is just really exciting to me. Um, and there are a lot of ways within art and commercial design that I see these things happening, whether it be like an expansive visual system, a flexible system, or things that are just coming up within art exhibitions and things like that, where it's expanding the discipline of graphic design but also like collapsing the discipline of graphic design at the same time which I think is a interesting place to be in at this moment in history. Well thank you both. I think now we'll hear some questions from students. Um, my name is Anna Lefkovich. I'm a graphic design student, and I guess my question is for both of you. Uh, what advice do you have for us beginning designers um, just off the basis of, like, us, 
I guess creating our own design style and where to go from there. Yeah. Um, I think that I give the same advice to a lot of my students in general is to just anchor down in that individuality. You still want to, you know, learn the rules, learn the structures, but I think that at this point in time, the graphic design field is so vast, and that really is something that I believe pushes you forward in a sea of just visual noise is really understanding that you're not trying to duplicate but amplify what you already have with the tools that you're given. Um, and I think that that sets just after for the post-school job search and things like that, it really sets you up. I also encourage students to be thinking about ways in which they can form their own practices while they're in school. Um, you don't have to wait to start a publishing company. You don't have to wait to start a podcast. You know, like these are things that take time and energy, but they're things that you can be thinking about. I think it's important that you kind of attack design from all sides or set a seed and let it grow into a network of things that you may be interested in? I think it's also important to just try and consume as much sort of design and media that you can from other sources. Uh, certainly what you're learning in your current curriculum is something that the professors have put together, the institution has put together, and a lot of design curriculums tend to be from a particular kind of Eurocentric point of view. It's a huge world out there. There's design systems throughout Asia, throughout Africa, throughout Australia, South America, even here in the Americas, uh, North America, I should say, uh, that you can gain inspiration from. And I think it's important to sort of decolonize your design view from what you may just see in your classes and really look out to other sources to gain inspiration, really just to get a different point of view on what design means to other people and other cultures. And then at the end of the day, you as the designer, can you have now this vast toolbox of resources to pull from from your work as opposed to just, say, a smaller subset than you would have before. What you're both really talking about is the students sort of taking ownership and being curious and yeah. um, taking risks and trying things, right, rather than kind of just being the good, obedient student, yeah. right? Mm -hmm break things a little bit, right? <laughs> well, another question? Um, my name is Alexis Zarek. Um, Taylor had mentioned something along the lines of some things are not always meant to last, as well as Maurice um, had said something as uh, design of the digital world is ephemeral, ephemeral, if I can say that right. Do you guys think in any way you guys are seeing it on the same kind of viewpoint or do you think in a way that is in a way sounds as similar but totally different viewpoints in your design and the way you design your artwork hmm. I mean I think it's the same I think it's about the same I mean I, I do agree that there are some things that you design that just won't be around forever I mean certainly there are styles that are constricted to certain eras of time um yeah, I think it's it's about the same. You want to chime in? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone has their individual perspectives that they're coming from, but I do believe that there is this larger thread of thought that 
connects specifically black designers and black artists there's like for me I, I tend to lean towards that mindset that there is this um thread of thought that we're all kind of writing that's I don't know um when I'm thinking about ephemera in general and what I said specifically I'm thinking about uh, a summer school program that I started uh, with my friend Rashid Atwater and we approached the project knowing that it necessarily wasn't meant to last that if it did what it was supposed to do it wouldn't necessarily be needed for forever um, because it was meant to just give the community a leg up and that doesn't mean like one year we didn't have like a time set but that's something that he said to me that just like that it stuck with me and has like uh, come into the way that I think about design and some projects of course some things should be archived, should be saved. <laughs> but yeah, it really depends on the project. Yeah, that, that there is no, you know, kind of one lifespan that is the goal, right? Yeah. That certain things are meant to be shorter term. Some things you want to find a way to make sure they live on. And maybe part of what you're both talking about is sort of being very intentional about which projects um, you want to continue. And even though those the continuation may take a very different form. Yeah, and I think that if the project certainly has great impact, that impact lives on, if, even if the artifacts don't. Yeah. Great. Another question? Um, um, Ethan Bagwell, graphic design as well. Um, so you said you were from Atlanta, which is an amazing and now well-known area of like culture and stuff. Does this help you reach out and find um, more designers in this kind of diversity area? And does that help you promote your idea to have an impact on the world and not just like your projects that you do? Uh, just being in Atlanta? Um, just kind of, does that promote it across the country or oh. other areas as well? Um, <laughs> does that help promote it across the country? Well, maybe another way of asking that. No, no, I can answer. I can okay. answer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, short answer is no, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, I. The interesting thing about I think podcasts is while they do reach a national or global audience, they can still be in a local sense unknown. I mean, Atlanta's not really, Atlanta's a good entertainment city. Atlanta's a good culture city. Atlanta's not a good podcasting city. Not like New York would be or Chicago or Los Angeles. Um, it's coming, the, it's coming up like it's getting better. Um, it's funny because I was relaying this to, uh, to uh, Jen Stucker earlier about how, you know, I sort of like that I have a bit of anonymity in Atlanta, even though I do my show there and I've done it there for almost seven years now, where I can go out and nobody knows who I am, which is great. Uh, but I'm able to sort of have a much larger impact in other places that don't necessarily have to do with just where I stay at. I mean, Atlanta's a great city. Atlanta, bastion of culture, music, art, etc. cetera. Um, I would say in a whole, though, for what I do with Revision Path, it doesn't help. I'm not saying it harms it, but it doesn't it doesn't help it either. It's just kind of a, a thing to know. Most people think I do the show out of New York. So if that gives any indication. <laughs> so I have a, a twist on that question for both of you. So Taylor, you're connected to Detroit, right? Maurice, you're in Atlanta. In what ways have those particular cities shaped your 
could be design sensibility or your sense of yourself as um, a black creative in the world? Yeah, um, I'll say that Detroit, first off, just has this undercurrent of grassroots workers that are always at the forefront of conversations. And it may not necessarily be through the mainstream media, but there's just such a strong network. And within that, this sense of familiar within that network. Um, also, I think as far as my visual aesthetic, it really, and I haven't thought a lot about this, but it really has poured into the way that I see beauty and the idea of decay or destruction or learning to really see beauty through what would maybe be perceived as others as um, like decay. Um, and I think that for Detroit, for me, that has just really shaped the way that I think about community and what design can really do, but also the ways that I know that I think about rebirth within that. Um, so, yeah. Um, see, Atlanta's interesting in that there are, like, Black people doing things at every single level. We've had, just if you want to just talk about leadership, we've had Black mayors for the past, you know, 40-something years. I've never not known Black people to be dope. I don't know if that's necessarily... Um, because of being in Atlanta, but certainly when you see that all around you, uh, those possibility models become more and more concrete. I mean, it's easy for me to go somewhere and bump into a celebrity or bump into someone who's doing something great. And it's not a big deal because you see it everywhere. It's just, I, I hate to give this this comparison to Wakanda, but <laughs> um, <laughs> it's one of those things where you just you see it everywhere, and so because you see it everywhere, you know that you can do it too. It's not something where I mean, even the city where I'm originally from is Selma, Alabama, which is well known in the civil rights movement, et cetera. To go from there to Atlanta at a time where I was beginning my education and really like becoming my own as an adult. I knew just from seeing everything that I saw around me, and I also went to a historically black college, that all of this is possible for me as a black person. There are no limits for what I can achieve because I see other people doing it. And so I would say Atlanta is very unique in that because of the colleges, the culture, the leadership, the music, the art, the food. I mean, everything. It's We're at all levels. And so because of that, uh, it's very easy to sort of see yourself succeed in that way. Well, Maurice and Taylor, thank you very much for joining me today. If you're interested in learning more about Maurice's podcast, Revision Path, visit uh, revisionpath.com. Our producers for this podcast are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza and AC Luffel. Research assistance was provided by ICS intern Megan Napolitan. This conversation was recorded in the Stanton Audio Recording Studio in the Michael and Sarah Colleen Center at Bowling Green State University.